What are the first words that come to mind when considering the attributes of God? How about the fact that he's all-powerful or all-knowing, holy, faithful, merciful, loving? Of course, all of these are true and precious character qualities of the one true living God, but there's another character quality that if we would remember it, I think we would more readily trust him. And that is the fact that he is gentle. You know, we're fragile human beings. And to know that, we, that our God who made us in his image is also a loving, gentle God. Takes some of the fear and apprehension about, out of trusting him. Several years ago, uh, Kim and I went to a dude branch way up in northern part of Canada, straight up. Uh, it's called the Flying U. I think they're still there. Um, and it's kind of unique because you, you go there and they give you your horse at 9 a.m. You don't have to bring the horse back until 4 p.m. They've got access to 40,000 acres, teardrop lakes, shining, glimmering aspens. It's, it's incredible. It's beautiful. But the fact is, we hadn't horseback ridden, you know, forever. And so what kind of horse do you think we asked for? A gentle horse. A gentle one. Unfortunately, they interpreted the word gentle as comatose. <laughs> they gave Kim molasses. That was the name of her horse. Mine was Lincoln, named after a dead president. We had to actually return and exchange our horses for once with a little more giddy up. Uh, but, but the fact is, these are powerful animals. They could do you harm, right? Look at that. Oh, he's gone. But uh, we were happy that, that, you know, we didn't have, you know, Rambo or, you know, a horse named Rambo or something that would have you know, bucked us off. How much more thankful ought we to be knowing that the one with whom we have to do, there is one with whom we have to do, right? We understand that. The one true living God with whom we will come face to face one day, the one with whom we have to do is a gentle Savior. As we shall see in today's passage, we pick it up right after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on a Saturday, which infuriated the Pharisees. They hated him for it because in so doing, he violated their narrowly interpreted, uh, interpreted uh, concept of the Sabbath day law. It's one of the commandments, right? You're going to honor the Sabbath. But, but they had really put a lot of pressure upon people to follow these rules and they were the rule keepers and they monitored everybody else and they were monitoring 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 Jesus um, and I'm not going to go into all of that 
thankfully, we have an AV team that renders these, edits these, and posts them on our homepage. So a couple of weeks ago, I encourage you to go to learn more about, because this was a key figure and a concept that, that Jesus pushed hard against uh, and got him in trouble, the Sabbath day law. It's called the compassionate outlaw. That's the name of two weeks ago. Um, and let me just say this. Jesus told these heartless rule keepers that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Stop making my people jump through hoops to, to somehow please you, to control them. And then he went on to say, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, which was outrageous. <laughs> he's, not, he's taking such authority that only belongs to God, and they hated him for it. It says that they wanted to wipe him out. Verse 14 of Matthew 12. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. Again, for doing what? For healing a man with a withered hand on Saturday. For that, they wanted to kill Jesus. And you wonder, you know, what requires more work, healing or plotting? <laughs> plotting his demise. The hypocrisy was thick. Verse 15, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to make him known. Jesus, of course, is aware that the Pharisees are plotting his demise, and so he withdraws. But in no way is he deterred from doing good on uh, the Sabbath or any day. He goes ahead and he heals everyone following him that needed healing. But he warns them not to talk it up. Why? Why would he say, don't you know, spread the news? But it would be hard to do, right? If you were healed of, you know, withered hand, blindness, muteness, uh, any other kind of lameness, that would be hard for you to be silent about. But Jesus is telling them, don't do it. For one, obviously, he doesn't need the accolades of man. Not at all. But also, and this is, this is something he would repeat again and again, his hour had not yet come. There would be an unveiling, and there would be hosannas, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was coming, but it wasn't now. The people there, especially in the Galilee, were volatile. They were ready for a revolution of force, but Jesus needed time to show them the Father. That's, that's the way that um, Jesus described himself to uh, Matthew in the, at the Last Supper. And he said, or not Matthew, I'm sorry, uh, Philip. He says, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Jesus needed more time to just demonstrate the heart of God and the love of God and the plans and purposes of God and to prepare them, his funky disciples, for a revolution of love. Not a force. A revolution of love. Think of the, you know, just ground zero for the church. They were growing up in an environment where the Roman Empire ruled with an iron fist. 
the empire tried to stamp out these humble followers of Christ, mostly poor people without any political clout, without any military might. But when the fourth century rolls around, the emperor himself converts to Christianity, embraces the faith. Using Christians as cannon fodder is off the table. And the gospel is no longer considered seditious, but the best news ever. And, and multitudes are saved. The whole new way of life for them. Agape force proved unconquerable, in other words. He did it by love. Never, no army, no forcing people. I think of Islam, how it spread by the edge of the sword around the Mediterranean in the 7th century. But not Christianity. It's a revolution of love. God's love. But it shouldn't have surprised anyone since the Messiah's gentle approach to revolution It's a revolution that begins in the heart of each individual. It was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, let's read, picking up again in verse 16. He warned them not to make him known, verse 17, in order that was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, my servant. So this is God the Father speaking about God the Son. Behold, my servant, servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. In his name, the Gentiles are the non-Jews. So, of course, it's the Jews' Messiah, but it's also for the Gentiles. And you know, this, this was troubling to the nation Israel, who had adopted an elitist attitude and really looked down at the Gentiles. But here, 700 years before Christ, he's prophesying that this is for the Gentiles. This is going to be the hope of the Gentiles. Stop considering them dogs and subhuman. The purpose of the nation Israel was to be a light to the nations. And that was throughout the Old Testament. God's mind has never changed in that matter. It's hope of, to the Gentiles. That's, that's what we sing at Christmas, right? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. <laughs> Autumn liked that in particular. She's laughing back there. Yeah, that's it. I can croak it out with the best of them. But does it really matter? I mean... These songs are incredible. The joy that comes through these Christmas carols. And that's just a little, to get your appetite wet. Next week, Autumn, I want you singing with everybody else 
of these Christmas carols. It just infused such hope into this planet, like nothing ever has or nothing ever will. It's the hope of Christmas. This is the hope of the Gentiles, the name that would bring hope to the Gentiles. Here in this ancient messianic passage, messianic passage is an Old Testament passage that is about the coming Savior. We find the three persons of the Godhead represented. The Father, praising His beloved Son in whom He is well pleased and upon whom He puts His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 700 years after Isaiah penned this prophecy, Jesus presented himself to be baptized as an example to us. Matthew 3.16 says that John the Baptist saw at, at that moment the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, that is Jesus, and behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased echoing what the prophet had said about Jesus 700 years earlier. And we see the same affirmation of the Father and the Holy Spirit in Isaiah as Jesus quotes this passage. He goes on to say, in verse 18, that the Messiah would proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Justice to the Gentiles. You know, a lot of us, we, we like the idea of mercy. Justice, not so much. Oftentimes, if we're looking accurately at our own lives. Martin Luther, that great reformer, he had a paradigm shift in his understanding of the gospel when he came to understand this proclamation here in verse 18. The essence of it is found in Romans 1, 17. The just, that is those who satisfy the justice of God, are going to live by faith. They're going to believe God for it, as opposed to working for it and making God their debtor. The just shall live by faith. The justice of God, which declares, the one who sins shall surely die. And we are all sinners. We don't deserve the least of his mercies, and yet they're new every morning. We deserve eternal separation from God, and if you don't understand that, you will never appreciate the grace of God. You will never sing the Christmas carol with all your might. This justice of God was met in Jesus Christ who bore in his body our sin upon the cross. That's the simple, beautiful gospel message. That's why he could say to Martha in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he who lives by faith, shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Again, Jesus is saying things that are blowing their minds because he's speaking with authority. Nobody else spoke like he spoke. That's what the temple guards came back 
to the religious leaders with when they were sent out to capture him and they came back empty-handed and they said, nobody speaks like this guy. We were powerless before him. This was the life-giving message that Jesus came to proclaim. And yet he did it in an amazingly humble way. Just think if you had that power. <laughs> yeah, you'd be ramboing it all over the place. And I would too. People get out of line. Here's a little thunderbolt. Maybe get you to straighten up and fly right. What patience. He doesn't go around picking fights with the religious leaders. He didn't seek to quarrel with them or cry out in their streets, verse 19. He wasn't obnoxious, in other words, and self-promoting. Instead, his gentleness is underscored when it says in verse 20, I love this. This passage is precious to me. Because I'm a bruised reed. I'm a smoldering wick. So often. He says this. A battered reed he will not break off. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. Won't you take that home with you today? <laughs> Think about that. A battered reed he will not break off. Is this God speaking? And the smoldering wick he will not put out. This battered reed and this smoldering wick could possibly refer to those who neglect or reject Jesus Christ. God doesn't smoosh them for living with their back to him, does he? Or are openly hostile toward him? Sin may live, leave a person battered and burnt out but the Lord is so merciful, he won't add to their folly his judgment until, verse 20, he leads justice to victory. For the unbeliever, that would be the second coming of Christ. That's when he will lead justice to victory. When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, the believer from the unbeliever, and rights all wrongs. But there is another sense in which we can apply this verse, verse 20. The maker of the universe knows our frame. And I love the way that David puts it in so poetic term, such a poetic term in Psalm 103. He is mindful that we are but dust. Okay, that's God again. He's mindful that we are fragile. And far from breaking us off, as a battered reed, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Again, this is an Old Testament description of the heart of God. Psalm 147. And far from snuffing us out, he would refill our souls with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's, that's how, you know, they would use oil lamps. In the first century, when the oil ran out, the wick would, become, would begin to smolder. But he didn't leave it like that. 
He would refill that lamp and he would refill us, making our hearts to flame in hope the way he did the disciples on the road to Emmaus, stirring their heart by unpacking scripture. He stirred their faith. On that road to Emmaus, the way we're doing today, we, that's what we do. Our principal ministry is unpacking the word of God. You need to hear from God today, not some talking head. So we stick to the scripture line upon line. But it says after the resurrection, when so many of the disciples were just forlorn, two of them were walking to Emmaus. They'd seen enough. Christ crucified, buried. And, and Jesus, incognito, starts walking with them and said, why are you guys so sad? Have you, are you the only one in Israel didn't know what went on this weekend? We'd hoped in him, and now he's gone. And said, Jesus, beginning with Moses, and, and the whole Old Testament began to unpack Scripture to them, showing them how the Messiah must suffer. And then he disappears from them, and the two of them recognized him and said, were not our hearts burning within us on the road as he was explaining to us how he is in every page of the Bible? It's all his story. History is his story. This, of course, is the hope referred to in verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. His name, Yeshua. It's a beautiful language, Hebrew. I don't know many words. It's Yeshua. Shalom. It's beautiful, isn't it? Soft, melodious. In the Greek, his name is Jesus. And in its simplest form, it simply means Savior. That's his name, and they're going to hope in his name because he alone fulfilled God's plan of the ages by taking away the sin of the world. Hope placed anywhere else is misplaced. Hope placed anywhere else but Jesus Christ is a vain hope. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Jesus Christ is the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And all those who receive them as their Lord and Savior, as it says in Ephesians 1.6, are accepted in the Beloved. There is no other way. There is no other hope. When Kim and I were visiting our daughter last week uh, in San Diego, we're walking through Balboa Park, and, and there's a, the Muslims had set up a little tent, and they were evangelizing there. And uh, they had a big banner that said, Jesus was a Muslim. You know, kind of provocative. To Jesus, uh, to the Muslim... Jesus was just another prophet, not as mighty or as great as Muhammad. But there's a problem there. If Jesus was just a prophet, 
then all we have is a bunch of prophets and no Savior. Muhammad didn't die for your sins. Buddha didn't die for your sins. Only the Lamb of God, without spot or blemish, died for our sins. There is only one Savior. Fortunately, we only need one. And that's who Jesus is. If you have no such hope today, and yet you desire God to be the glory and lifter of your head, the scripture says, don't let the fear of giving your life away paralyze you. Why? Because he's a gentle Savior. You don't have to be afraid. I love the, the way that it's defined. Gentle, the word, is defined as mild, not rough, harsh or severe, peaceable, not wild or turbulent, soothing, easy, not violent or abrupt. If you're in a relationship with someone, and in the more intimate relationship, the more you want them to be like this. Nespa? What parent among us, when our child is wounded, doesn't naturally, innately, gently pick them up, hold them tenderly, and speak words of comfort to them? Where do we get that? Where does that desire even come from? It comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God. That's where it comes from. Typically, you don't have to teach parents to be tender toward their children, to be gentle with these fragile little persons. We need to hear and respond to his words of comfort, referred to as that still, small voice, not a raging wind blustery and boastful and says he wasn't in all those things. Elijah found out he was in the gentle blowing. The still small voice, his gentle voice when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. One of the great I am statements. I am gentle. I am is the name of God. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. If you're listening and don't have such a hope, but desire God to be the glory and lifter of your head, you can trust him here. He's gentle and humble of heart. If you do have such a hope, but are not at this moment abounding in hope, I encourage you as well. Come to Jesus and learn from the one who is, quote, gentle and humble in heart. Not only will we find the rest for our souls, a sure hope in Christ brings. But we will be transformed into more gentle creatures in the process. We will become more like him 
In other words, we will be able to, as Matthew Henry says, receive affronts and injuries as a stone is received into a heap of wool, which gives way to it. And so it does not rebound back nor go any further. You know, if, if we live vengefully in this life and adopt a tit-for-tat attitude, when will it ever end? You know, in our own strength, we are undone. That's why there's just war after war and rumor of war on this planet. But can you imagine a pile of wool and you, you, you drop a stone into it? Are you, are you afraid it's going to ricochet and take you out? No, it says, <clears throat> he says, it does not rebound back. It doesn't go any further. It just, it's absorbed by the wool. That's Christ. That's what he has done on our behalf. And you know what our reward is for trusting in him? Being transformed into his image. We'll become like the one who is altogether lovely. A person that, that, that reflects Jesus Christ is attractive. He's a, they are attractive to believer and unbeliever alike. It's just otherworldly, really, because you don't see it. In our own nature, we can't fake it. Not for long, anyway. Let us ask this gentle Savior to take the reins in our lives and to make us more like him, knowing that he alone is completely trustworthy. For he alone has both the power and the inclination to heal our broken hearts and bind up our wounds. How good is God? That's the plan that he has for us, saints. Amen. Amen. Lord, please pray with me. Lord, you are altogether lovely. You are good. In you we hope, Lord. In your name, Yeshua, God is salvation. There is no other. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So thankful you have the power and inclination to bind up our broken hearts, to salve our wounds, to heal us, if you have been listening to my voice today, either here in this house or online, and you don't have such hope, and yet you desire God to be the glory and lifter of your head, I want you to pray with me. It's no accident that you are hearing my voice right now imploring you to be reconciled to God. 
He is, he is stirring your heart to act as an act of will, to trust in him. But I also want to pray for those who have trusted in Jesus, but you're really not abounding in hope. We live in a fallen world. It's very easy to become discouraged. It's very easy to become afraid. But you want to take a step toward Jesus so that he would then fill your lamp with his spirit, fill your heart, your soul with his presence, that you would again be revived and, and that smoldering wick would, would, would flame with a passion for God and a love for your fellow man. Because you are now, again, being drenched in agape force, agape love, the love of God, the unfailing, unconditional love of God. You want to pray. Either, either one to hope in Christ for the first time or, or to have that flame relit and the oil refilled. Just pray with me in the quiet of your heart. You just say, God, I live in a dry and weary land. The things I hear and see, social media, it's sucking the life out of me. <laughs> Lord, help me. Help me now. Turn my face to heaven. To trust in the Lamb for sinners slain the gentle Savior. Fill me with your presence, Lord. Fill me with all joy and peace in believing that I would abound in hope, as the apostle tells the Romans, by the power of your Spirit. Do that work that only you can in my life today, and I will give you all the praise and all the glory, for it is in your name I pray. Amen.